Bonjour, I'm Valérie Jardin, the host of Street Focus, and you're listening to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for This Week in Photo is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. TWIP is also brought to you by Panasonic Lumix Cameras, changing photography for the next generation. And FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. To try FreshBooks for free, just go to freshbooks.com TWIP, and when you sign up, enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Before we dive into this week's show, here's a quick look at what's happening this week on the TWIP Network over on TWIP Family. Jenny is joined by mom and rock star portrait and wedding shooter Sandy Pooch. And on TWIP Talks, I talk with the developer of the InLight iOS app. His name is Zeev Farbman. And over on TWIP Weddings, it's a discussion about the meet and greet the wedding inquiry and over on the fix mark johnson joins jan to discuss photoshop explosive effects over on your itinerary rob chats with roman Currizak, and on street focus the amazing and talented karen hutton joins valerie to talk about street all that and more is happening this week on the twip network you can subscribe to any or all of our shows over at thisweekinphoto.com slash subscribe this is TWIP, episode 420, Fashion and the Northern Lights. Hey, TWIP Army, by the time you listen to this episode, I'll be somewhere on the Hawaiian island of Kauai, hopefully enjoying myself with a nice drink, a nice breeze, and a nice sunset. But that's the main reason why this week's episode consists of two fantastic interviews I recently did with two different photographers operating in polar opposite genres. The first interview is with Ron Murray. Ron has made a name for himself by creating amazing gallery-worthy imagery of the Northern Lights, also known as the Aurora Borealis. Not only does Ron brave the frigid temperatures of Alaska to get those amazing shots, he also regularly leads workshops where he teaches other photographers the nuts and bolts of how to shoot the lights. In the second interview, it's with the soon-to-be TWIP host, Mr. Steve Brokaw. I first met Steve in person while attending one of Valerie Jardin's Parisian workshops. And looking at his work, you can see that he's not only very passionate about fashion and model photography, but he's also an excellent photographer and technically-minded artist. Two great artists, one episode of TWIP. It's Monday, July 6th, 2015, and this is TWIP. All right, guys, I'm sitting here with a photographer who you may have seen some of his work before. He's based way up north in, in Fairbanks, Alaska, and one of the reasons why he's up there is to take photos that many of us, and I would argue most of us, don't have an, an opportunity to take photographs of this subject, and that's the northern lights, or if, you're, if you move in geeky circles, it's called the Aurora Borealis up there. So uh, Ron Murray is the guy, you know, he's from Ron Murray Photo. Uh, dot com if you want to check out his work but we're going to talk about we're going to talk a little bit about Ron and how he got into this stuff but we're also going to dive into some of the you know the mechanics behind capturing the northern lights myself much like a lot of people probably think that hey yeah whatever he's aim your camera at the sky hit the button and walk away you're done but I have a sneaking suspicion that it's not quite that simple <laughs> so, so Ron Murray welcome to this week in photo thank you Frederick thanks for having me Hey, it's good to have you, man. So let, let's, we've been trying to do this interview forever, but let's, let's dive into it um, and not waste any time here. First of all, 
you you're a photographer by trade now. How did you get into this this wacky profession of uh, of clicking a shutter button for a living? <laughs> Believe it or not, I was in your area. Um, I was spending my summers down in California um, selling pest control door to door over the summers to get through college. Nice. Uh, and I was there in about 2007 when the housing market started to crash, and so I found myself with lots of time. And I picked up a little cell phone with a camera on it, and I ran all over the, the Bay Area kind of taking photos. Uh, and I loved the camera on the phone, but I wasn't so thrilled with the phone. And then iPhone was coming out, so I had to, you know, look at that anyway. But uh, took the phone back, got a camera, um, ran around Sacramento with it for two days taking photos. And I came back, and I looked at the photos, and I was just in love. And I said, you know what, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Um, and a lot of people laughed at me, and I put on the blinders, and I just never looked back, and, and just kept going. 2007. We're in, we're in 2015 now, so I mean that's a good amount of time hmm. to look at your work today versus you know what I would imagine was you know sort of amateurish work when you first started. <laughs> that would be being up. kind. <laughs> your your work is amazing. I mean it's like gallery style you know, high-end stuff that you'd hang big on the wall. How did you traverse from, you know, selling pest control products door-to-door to, -door to <laughs> making gallery-style giant prints of the Northern Lights? Well, um, there's, there's a lot involved, obviously, over those years. Um, but a lot of it, honestly, was uh, I got in. I got in with a crew that did portraits, a national school portrait studio, um, learned a lot about portraiture and lighting in that regard and just, you know, basic compositional rules. And then, honestly, a lot of it was reading books and podcasts. So your show, um, there used to be a show called, uh, I think it was called The Lighting Podcast, something along those lines, uh, Light Source, that's what it was. Okay. Um, but then I found your podcast, and I've been listening to that for years and, and uh, some others. Uh, and so I just, you know, soak up every bit of knowledge I can and try to learn from the guys who have been in the industry for decades. You know, there's, there's a wealth of information out there, and, and so... Yeah, cool? just I mean, make use of it. And and you are, I mean, that's that's amazing. And thank you for for listening to this week in photo. It's a uh, absolutely. You know, like like I say on the show from time to time, this week in photo is my weekly therapy session. I think without Twip, I would be completely insane by now. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, it's it's therapy for us too. I'll tell you what, we we sometimes save it up if we've got a long drive. And my wife and I are both photographers, so um, both of us get a lot out of it, and it's awesome. That's cool. That's cool. All right, let's let's fast forward into now. So now you're you're like I said at the in the beginning there, you're based in Fairbanks, Alaska, where you know daylight hours kind of mean something different to <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> you get like six months of daylight and six months of night up there, right? Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. Wow. So which makes it an ideal situation for capturing the aurora borealis, notwithstanding the fact that the phenomena occurs at the poles, right? So right, right. So here at Fairbanks. Let's talk about the phenomena of the northern lights and actually what it is. So what sure. is the northern lights? So to put it very simply, um, the northern lights are, it's basically electrical energy coming from the sun, bombarding the gases in our atmosphere, and it creates um, a light, kind of like the way a neon light works. Mm -hmm. um, that's the simple version, really. There's a lot more involved. The sun has solar flares or coronal holes, and it, it involves all kinds of um, physics on the sun, and then it comes to our planet sometimes and if it hits our planet just right then there's some physics involved with that our magnetic field will block it out and so you know 
when you when you delve into the science of what it is and how it occurs, it's amazing that we even see it at all, let alone with the frequency that we see it. Um, for example, this season, since August, since it got dark enough to see Northern Lights, um, we have had three clear nights where we have not seen Northern Lights. So every other night that it's been clear, we've had Aurora. That's crazy. You know, and when I was I was doing my research for this interview and kind of diving deep on what the Northern Lights were, I uh, the 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 takeaway that I took was, you know, the the Earth is, you know, part of what sustains life on Earth is the fact that we have this amazing um, electromagnetic field that mm -hmm. surrounds us and protects us from these charged particles that come from the sun, which although is the source of life on Earth, is also trying to kill us a little bit. So, right. So, <laughs> well, radiation, basically. Radiation is not good for carbon-based life forms like us. Right. So, <laughs> so we have this, this magnetic field around the Earth, which is created by the spinning iron core, and then when these charged particles from the sun, or the radiation from the sun, hits that, it kind of, they kind of ride the electromagnetic field to the poles, and then that's where they deposit themselves, and they kind of glow before they come in, and that's yeah. what you're capturing. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I didn't know how deep you wanted to get into it, but you're right, that magnetic field blocks a lot of it, and actually what happens is the, the storm comes from the sun, um, the magnetic field blocks it, it gets deflected around us, and then parts of those particles are allowed to travel up the magnetic field lines and into the polar regions, yeah. which is why you get the oval at the bottom and the top. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's colored light, and so depending on the altitude at which those electrical energies reach and which gases they strike, um, gives us the different colors that we get. And that's crazy. I mean, that you know, I I have not. You've seen probably dozens and dozens of this. You know, the 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 northern lights, but I have not seen them other than in photos, like you know, from folks that are up there doing it, like you. But I can't imagine the grandeur and just sort of the awesomeness of seeing that in person. So when you when you first saw them and you were like, okay, I gotta capture this, what was your experience like? Were you were you were you successful in your first time out trying to capture them? Well, I've made pictures of them, <laughs> but I would not call it a success, no. Um, I got something on the image. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean everything was out of focus. I didn't I didn't know how to focus for the stars and it was it was a mess. It was just, you know, I look back at that stuff and, and now I, I occasionally post something like that on Facebook just so people can laugh at me so I can laugh at myself at how far I've come with that. But um, you know, it was, and when I started, it was not a good time to be an aurora photographer. So all right, I don't know if you learned this, but the sun goes through an 11-year solar cycle. So we have peaks and then troughs and then peaks and then troughs. Um, and so right now we're at the peak of that. But back in 2008, 2009, even I started this actually in 2007 with the aurora, um, we were at the trough. And so there wasn't many nights with aurora. So there were a lot of nights sitting out. Um, on a hillside in the cold, waiting and hoping. And so I learned a lot about my camera. I had a lot of time to just play with things and paint <laughs> with light. Um, but yeah, it was it, it was definitely a steep learning curve. Um, and the technology has evolved a lot in that time. Yeah, yeah, just the ability to capture this stuff. So when you're Let's just let's talk about the mechanics of it. So, what is involved with capturing the nor northern lights? I assume you're using a tripod, but beyond that, you know, what what do you need to take out there with you while you're sitting on the side of that hill? Well, probably the most important thing is the clothing for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because if you're not staying warm, for example, right now it is 38 below zero. Um, that is... And, it, and it's daytime. So, um, so, yeah, the clothing is important, staying warm, keeping your, your hands protected, because if you touch a tripod at 38 below, it's instant frostbite. There's You don't even have time to react to it before your fingers are frostbitten. Yeah. Um, so, you know, good, good outfit, um, lots and lots of layers and lots and lots of down. Um, but as far as the actual photography gear, of course, a tripod, you're, you're taking a long exposure. Um, so you have to keep the camera steady. Um, shutter release cables, honestly, don't fare very well at 40 below. They become a stick instead of a cable. Oh, right. Um, and then they so will use... snap, right? Yes. <laughs> so I use the two-second self-timer method uh, to steady my shots. Um, a good camera, obviously. Fortunately, uh, the technology has come a long ways. I used to tell people you had to have a, a DSLR. Um, that is not the case anymore. I am shooting all mirrorless systems. In fact, I, I switched entirely to Sony stuff this year. Awesome. Uh, for the first time. Um, but, you know, a, a good camera capable of manual settings is critical. And then wide, fast glass is essential. Um, those are probably the three major things. So, so uh, you know, a couple things. I was scribbling down some notes when you're talking. So the first thing that comes to mind when I think of those extreme environments, you know, on the on the cold side, is battery. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think two yeah. things. I think battery life is going to be adversely affected, especially if you're on this, you know, this long-term sort of waiting on the side of a hill expedition. You know, and you get oh, there it is, and your battery's gone. You know. Yep. <laughs> and the second thing is weatherproofing on your camera. You're shooting. I'm a, I'm assuming the A7 or A7S. Hmm. Is that is it? I mean, can it stand up to those extremes? I assume it can, since you're using it. Yeah. Um. So to be honest, in a in a typical winter in Fairbanks, we have seen temperatures like we're experiencing now. You know, for weeks. Um. But. We just got this 40 below stuff in the last few days, and so I hadn't really got to thoroughly test my gear in the cold until a couple of nights ago. Yeah. Um, we were actually, our our university here was launching some rockets up into the Aurora to study them, and so we were out filming that. Um, and the, the Sony did great. Uh, I left it sitting on a tripod. Well, I have two of them. I left them sitting on the tripod uh, for several hours, about six hours at 42 below it was that night, and no problem. But battery life was atrocious. I was getting about 10 minutes out of a battery. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the issue is that just like us, in those kinds of extreme cold, electrons get cold and they huddle up and they don't like to actually flow or move. And so um, you can coax them back to life. The, the secret is just keep you know, a couple of extra batteries in a warm pocket somewhere and then you can swap those batteries out and usually you can get through the night. The Sony is a little challenging. Um, battery life uh, leaves a lot to be desired, but a Canon or a Nikon, uh, you can get through the whole night on two batteries, no problem. Yeah, that's one of the things I heard about. I mean, you know, for all its merits, the A7, the A7S, you know, in particular with the low light sensitivity and all that, the one Achilles heel that I keep hearing over and over with the those bodies, the A7 series, is battery life. I mean, even, yes. in, <laughs> even in, you know, ideal temperate conditions, let alone those extreme conditions like you're operating in. You know, I was in Paris uh, last year, and a bunch of folks had the A7, A7S, and they had to carry a bag full of batteries just to make it through the day. You know, so yep. hopefully, hopefully Sony will address that, but that is, I know that's an issue. So I was curious as to how that affected you. What about weather sealing? Um, you know, the weather sealing, I, so it's a twofold 
equation, right? Obviously, the A7S is not professionally weather sealed, um, yeah. which which hasn't been an issue as of yet. Um, and then uh, the lenses that I'm using, I actually use a Roken on 24-1.4 for filming. Cool. Um, because, quite frankly, uh, it's it's sharper edge to edge than than the Sony or I mean than the Nikon or the Canon version of it. Yeah. Um, and so for what I'm doing, I don't need autofocus or any of the bells and whistles. Um, all manual is great, uh, so it works well for me. Um, but it's not weather sealed either. <laughs> right. So you're kind of making that problem a little bit worse. But I have not, knock on wood, had an issue with that as of yet. Um, part of it is in the care that we take putting the gear away. It's not so bad being out there because the frost will only pretty much stick to the outside of the gear. Mm -hmm. um, it's when you bring it back in and the condensation when it warms up becomes an issue. So you do things like put your camera gear in a Ziploc bag, um, zip it up so that any moisture will cling to the bag rather than your gear, and then you put it in your camera bag immediately and zip it shut and let the camera warm up slowly overnight so you just don't take it out of the bag until the next morning. Um, that way you don't get the moisture inside of the gear and you don't have those issues. So thus far, um, that has not been an issue with the A7S, I'll tell you, at the end of the season. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to touch base again because I'm, I'm definitely curious about that. So this, all this stuff, all these learnings, that, and you've, you've learned all this stuff by just you know, throw the baby into the pool kind of learning, right? So, yep. And you figured out, it sounds like you figured out an amazing amount of stuff um, on how to, you know, just prepare to get the shot and then getting the shot after the fact. You're leading workshops up there as well, right? So Absolutely, yeah. And what do, you, what do you do on one of these workshops? So um, we realized, my wife and I realized really quickly that there was a, a whole group of people, a lot of people actually, that, that come up here and they want to go experience the Northern Lights and of course they want to take pictures of them. But there wasn't anybody really teaching outside of like a, a one-week kind of Martin Bailey type workshop out in the middle of the, the mountains. Uh, there wasn't anybody doing that kind of stuff for the folks who are just here for a few nights in, in yeah. town. And so we designed a, a workshop and we started taking folks out and basically we we do what we call an Aurora Chasers workshop which is where we take folks out just like we would out to some remote location find some nice landscape teach them how to set up their cameras teach them how to predict the Aurora for the time that they're here and uh, make sure that they get some great photos and then we take portraits of them in front of the Aurora that is killer. It would okay, you know, not to make this a, a commercial about the workshop, <laughs> because I'm interested. How much is something? How much is that going to set me back to do that? So you know, it, uh, it it's not cheap, but it's not expensive. It's about two hundred ninety-five dollars, and that includes all of the workshop and everything. You know, and when you're up here, you're spending That's thousands cheap, of dollars. Dude. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, there you can do you can do cheaper tours. You're just not going to get that kind of experience. So yeah, I was I was expecting like you know you know full as seventeen hundred or something like yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that would be cost prohibitive for a lot of folks. So yeah, yeah. we tried to we tried to keep it right at a, a good spot. Wow, that's that's really cool. Okay, so let's let's get into the mechanics of your of it. So you're up there. You've kept your camera warm, you've got it in the bag, you're you're on location, you've taken the camera out, it's on the tripod, it's ready, the aurora is dancing, you're ready to get the shot. Now what? Like what do you what do you what's next? Are you just setting at F sixteen and long exposure or, or what? <laughs> yeah. So you know one of the things uh, I think people don't realize is that the Aurora can move really 
really fast. Um, I mean, you can see it literally just go across the sky in just a matter of a half a second. Um, not always, but occasionally it is that quick. And so what we're ultimately doing is dealing with a long exposure, but trying to treat it as close to a sports shot as we could. And what I mean by that is we're, we're trying to freeze the action so we can get some definition and some nice sharp curtains and things like that in the aurora. Otherwise, it looks like a silky waterfall, which you know is okay, but it's not really the most pleasant way to show the aurora. Yeah. Um, so we're using wide, fast glass, and what I mean by that is, you know, wide apertures, wide angles, um, so that we can we can get a shorter shutter speed. Um, we're using high ISOs, and that's where things like the A7S really come into play. Yeah. Um, fortunately, that technology has evolved a lot over the time I've been doing this, and so we, you know, 3200 ISO is nothing to even bat an eye at at this point. But um, so when I was first doing this, 800 was a challenge. The noise level on the A7S, which is notoriously great for for low light situations, mm -hmm. that works for that's going to be acceptable for doing these kind of celestial images. Uh, yeah. Well, let's. Let's say it's better than most cameras. Um, at 3200 with the Sony A7S, I feel like my still images are about the equivalent of uh, maybe 1600, maybe even a little less on the Canon Mark 5D Mark III. Mm -hmm. um, where it really shines, though, is obviously in the video world. Um, you start pushing the ISO in a still, and you still... I, I don't know why, but it handles 40,000 ISO just fine with, with 4K video. But when you try to shoot a still image at 40,000, it's still pretty noisy. So yeah. there's something in the algorithm and the way that it's putting out the video that changes that. But I'm still a remarkable camera. Like I said, I'm shooting everything stills and video with that camera now. So. Wow. Well, that's great. That's great. So then, okay, so you're out there, you're you know, setting a high ISO and a wide aperture, and you're just clicking away and waiting for the right moment. Like you said, you're you kind of treating it like sports, you know, and you're waiting for the the decisive moment of the aurora borealis. You capture that. So one one question I had while looking at your stuff, what about star trails and things like that, right? Because that's that's a completely different area. You're not doing, you know, sports at that point. Now we're talking extremely long exposures that are letting the Earth draw the pattern of the stars. How does that stuff work? Well, star trails are a little challenging up here because of the aurora. Um, if you do a star trail, you're going to have a whole lot of aurora sometimes overpowering all. I mean, you'll still see the stars, but your sky will be almost like daylight because of the northern light. So that is a challenge. Obviously, you're kicking ISO way down, um, and you may even stop down a little bit um, so that you can drag that shutter and still have you know the right amount of light. But um, to be honest... The easiest way to do star trails, as you may or may not know, is to shoot a time lapse. Uh, and I shoot a lot of time lapse, and so I just stack those images so they're dual purpose for me. I can get a video out of it, and I can make a star trails photo. That's cool. Yeah, that that's perfect. That's perfect segue because my next question was, you know, looking at your work, I was wondering, is any of this stuff composited, or you know, is he stacking, or you know, how does how does this stuff? Because this cannot possibly come from a single frame <laughs> you know you know frederick that's a good question my favorite thing in the world is actually to to make the portraits of folks under the northern lights because i think a lot of folks see it and they've never experienced it and and they're out there with me and they still don't they, they're still blown away i show them the back of the camera after we've made a portrait of them 
and they just their jaws drop and they go, "Wow, yeah, that looks like you put me in front of a green screen." Well, it's magic, right? I mean, you've got an amazing phenomenon if you know a little bit of lighting. Uh, that's all it takes to make a good image, and you add the aurora to that, and it's just mind-blowing. But no, it's not, um, save for star trails or something like that, it is not composited. Um, anything that you'll find on my website that is composited is is noted as such. Um, but yeah, no, the aurora really is. If you get a good image of it, it is that magic. It doesn't take uh, any any post-production tricks. So just just so I understand this, so now you're you're telling me that for your workshops, you bring people up there, you take them out to, you teach them how to do all this stuff, you take them out to a remote location, set them up to win, show them how to do their camera, get everything set up, they get this shot of a lifetime, and you also do a portrait of them in front of this, this you know, celestial phenomena, and it's under 300 bucks. Absolutely. <laughs> you might want to revisit that, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, you might want to add, you know, a couple hundred on top of that at least. Uh, <laughs> that's that's phenomenal, man. That's really cool. Thank you. So then, okay, so, you know, we're coming to the end here. So what's next for for you and the business? Are you going to expand out there? Are you, you know, are you on your way back to the U.S.? You know, because if you like cold temperatures, I hear there's some space on the East Coast these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been hearing that a lot, too. In fact, they've had our temperatures most of the winters. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, I think uh, I think we're going to hang out here through at least the end of this solar cycle. So we've got at least, you know, another three or four years. Um it's really hard to think about expanding because the the business is very personal it's it's my wife and myself and we take a maximum of eight folks out and so you know we have a four to one ratio so we can really spend some time with folks and really make sure everybody's getting the shots that they want and so that is part of the experience is just being out there with the aurora chasers and so to hand that off to somebody who maybe doesn't have the same passion is hard. If I could ever find the right person, absolutely we would expand and, and eventually we would like to have these tours in other parts of the world. Um, partially because we want to shoot in other parts of the world, right? Yeah. See Aurora from different places. Um, but no, we'll be here for a while, definitely. Um, and then after that, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Right now we're I'm delving into the video world as we discussed earlier and, and that is a whole new learning curve and a and my goodness, talk about gear lust. <laughs> you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here, man. <laughs> <laughs> that, that stuff gets expensive really, really quickly. Um, but, you know, this year the A7S made, made real-time video of the Northern Lights possible for the very first time with any kind of quality. And so... Uh, and then we have things like the Atomo Shogun, and now I'm doing, you know, 4K, which is just wow. Insanity. <laughs> wow. It's, it's insanity. I, I cannot believe how far the tech has evolved in, in just 12 months. And yeah. and what I'm hearing in the rumor mill for 2015 is is really exciting. So. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, if, uh, in, in, the, in the next couple of years, you know, half a decade or so, 4K will seem like 640 by 480. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, I mean, what point do we get to? I asked Philip Bloom, what point do we get to where the resolution supersedes what the human eye is capable of even viewing? You know? Well, well yeah. for me, personally, as I age and my vision degrades, <laughs> I passed that point a long time ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, have this, I have this retina iMac that I can't appreciate because, of, you know, my eyesight sucks. <laughs> yes, thanks to you, I had to buy my wife one of those, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> 
Really? You, how did yeah. you like it? Yeah, she was, she, she was. We listened to the whole review of it, and then on the podcast, we were hearing about your purchase, and she she absolutely loves it. It's changed her world, and you know, she's a Mac girl. I'm a PC guy, so that's a debate. But um, yeah. yeah, she's absolutely loving that thing. Yeah, I you know I I have nothing bad to say about my my iMac. It's I I stand by my statement of this: the iMac is the best Mac that I've ever owned. You know? I think she would echo those sentiments. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, let's let's wrap this up. So, um, uh, if a couple things. So, if folks are interested in doing this, you know, you're the, I would put you in the category as the twip expert on this kind of photography, obviously. So, like, if someone's like, you know, what, they're listening to this, and you're like, you know what, I want to, I'm inspired. I want to go out in my backyard. I want to do some shots. I want to get some star trails or something. I have a camera. I got a, a Sony or whatever. I want to do this. What tips would you give them as they're going out and they're setting up their tripod tonight to get some star trails or some other kind of nighttime photography of the sky? Uh, the biggest thing with nighttime photography, biggest tip I can give you is patience. It requires an awful lot of patience. Um, uh, and then, yeah, just use tripod, use good, you know, it's a different style than what most people are used to. Everybody's running around with a camera handheld and shooting and, and fast shots. So... You know, think in terms of, of long term. It's it's almost like shooting video. You're almost shooting a linear image um, in a still, and so you're waiting for a certain amount of time or a certain amount of events. Um, fireworks is a good thing to think about. For fireworks, I treat it like video. I hold the shutter open. I watch the fireworks disperse until I see what I think looks good, and it's basically painted a picture over time, and then I let go of the shutter release. Yeah. Um, so star, star trails would be very similar to that. Um, yeah, patience, patience, patience. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Wide, wide, fast glass uh, is is also very important for night skies. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And it's interesting that you you mentioned that Rokinon because I have one on my shelf <laughs> that I love. You know, they're amazing. Little, and I shoot on Micro Four Thirds these days, so you know, it's a little, it's a little Rokinon. I forget what the focal length is, but it, it it's a fisheye and. You know, I got it on Amazon, and it is one of my favorite lenses. It's all manual, no mm -hmm. IS or anything in it, but it's a brilliant little sharp lens. You know, I think that's completely underrated. You know, because of its cost and because of, of how cheap it is. Absolutely, so. and and for those of us who have moved into these newer systems that have focus speaking, <laughs> things that we should already have in a camera. I mean, the 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 autofocus lack or lack thereof is not really that big of an issue for me. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not, yeah. And for those that don't know what focus peaking is, it is a technology that I think folks in the video world have had forever, but essentially when you're focusing, it's kind of like a Terminator focusing. So it's <laughs> when you're focusing, the things that are in focus get outlined or highlighted with like a colored pixel, you know, like in the case of my cameras, I think I have it set to like some kind of uh, neon green or something. So if I'm focusing on a person, that person, the in-focus areas of that person become highlighted in neon green, letting me know that that area is in focus. So if you're using, Ron, if you're using focus peaking um, when you're shooting, say, the stars, do you focus on the stars and the, the stars get highlighted with focus peaking? Absolutely. In fact, you you it, it's beautiful, especially on the Shogun where I've got that 7-inch display in 1080. Um, 
all of a sudden you see stars light up in the highlights and the focus peaking that you can't even see with your own eye. Right. Uh, and that's when you know you're dialed in. So, yeah, but um, for night sky photography, obviously, infinity focus, getting those stars sharp is critical because if they are not sharp, your image is, you know, that's the telltale sign of an amateur versus somebody who has some experiences is looking and seeing stars that are nice and sharp and in focus. Yeah. So to, to close us off, the last piece of this is post-processing, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're out there, you come back in, you've avoided frostbite once again. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> Not always. You, you're, you know, luckily all your fingers and toes come back in with you. You have the same amount that you left with, right? So, yes, fortunately. <laughs> so, so when you, are you a Lightroom person? Are you Aperture? Are you bringing them into Photoshop and doing your post? How do you get the images from the card when you're out in the field to looking like that image that you have behind you on the wall? Excellent question. Yeah, so um, obviously the majority of the work is done in the camera. Um, I, I'd rather spend my time out there than sitting at the computer. I do use Lightroom. Um, I, I adopted Lightroom back in version 2 and, and have now converted my my Apple lady into a Lightroom user, um, and before it was forced upon her. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, Lightroom is, 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 for me, it's a really easy data management, and, and I can process really quickly. Um, the other night, I think I went through 12 images in about five minutes. Uh, wow. I don't do a lot of post-processing, some exposure adjustment, contrast is always needed with a RAW file. Um, noise reduction is usually pretty uh, necessary with Aurora, and they handle it really well because you're you're shooting a, a dark sky with a little bit of foreground, and the stars have to be sharp, um, but everything else is kind of a neutral, you know, uh, tone, and so noise reduction is no problem. Yeah. Um, little bit of you know highlights, adjustments, and shadow, and that kind of stuff. But that's about as far as I get into them. I, I don't spend a lot of time on the Aurora images. And then your final product, when you're done, you say you do that 12 whatever minutes of post-processing, um, what's the final destination for those images? Is it online? Are you, do you go to print? What, what's, what's your final destination? Uh, so I, I render out usually two versions of the ones that I really like. Um, I do, obviously, you know, the economy of an image is how many likes it gets on Facebook. So there's a version that goes out to Facebook. Uh, and then for the really nice stuff, the images, you know, I get, I try to get, honestly, two or three wow images that I'm just in love with a month. Um, and if I can get that, I'm really happy with my month. Uh, and so those ones go out to the website, so those are produced in a high res, you know, 300 PPI or DPI. And um, So I have, you know, kind of a different platform for different images. Um, but yeah, most of them just go to Facebook or they go to the clients um, and so that they can share them around on Facebook. I'm sure that's where they end up. And, uh, so, but yeah, most most go to Facebook, and then a select few, just the best of the best, go out to the website. Love it. All right, here here's a personal question for you before I end this. So, mm -hmm. if you know, if a person, me, were say to <laughs> jump on a cruise ship and take a cruise to Alaska, in and take some sort of transport to get to you to get to the Aurora, is that sort of path possible? Could that happen? It could. Um, you're looking at fall time for then. So one of the things to consider with cruises is that most of them are summertime things, and we don't have enough darkness in the sky. We're actually the opposite of what we have now, which is 24 hours of daylight, land of the midnight sun. Yeah. Um, so you want to consider that. But if you were to come, say, in September, which is hands down my favorite month for northern lights, 
um, because we have it's warm, the mosquitoes are dead, and we have open water to shoot reflections of aurora. Um, and you can still take that cruise ship up here <laughs> and, and catch the northern lights. So it's kind of that sweet spot. Um, but yes, you could come into Anchorage or Whittier or even Valdez and then um, catch a bus or some kind of other tour up here, or you could drive up here. Um, if you're coming exclusively to see the Northern Lights and you're coming in the in the winter, um, then you can fly right into Fairbanks. It's an international airport, and Alaska Airlines has service uh, here, um, oftentimes direct from Seattle. So wonderful. So from from the Bay Area, we just bounce through Seattle, fly into Fairbanks, jump in a rental car or something, and and we're good. That's it. Yeah. Yep. So we will, and we actually pick you up right at your hotel, so you don't even have to do that. Um, I love it. What's not yeah. to like? All right, right? So, so folks that are like, okay, all right, where do I go? I want to get some shots of the Northern Lights. What's your URL again? Where would you like people to go to uh, check your workout and perhaps sign up for the workshop? Sure, it's, uh, it's ronmurrayphoto.com, and that's two N's in Ron. Uh, or a really easy way to get to it is alaskaauroracam.com. takes you to the same site, um, but a specific page where we have a webcam. So if folks want to kind of prime themselves up, they can watch the Aurora live with us. We put a photo out every 30 seconds there. Uh, and they can also kind of look back through the daily history and see what the Aurora has done historically day by day. So. That's cool. All right. I'll link to that in the blog post for this. Ron Perfect. Murray, thank you, man, for taking the time out of your eternal day <laughs> <laughs> to, or your half a, half a year of daylight up there to chat with me and the This Week in Photo audience. I think this is very educational and inspirational. I appreciate it. Thank you, and we'll see you uh, up here maybe in March. I, you know, I, I would love to come up there, man, and, and get some shots of that. I'll bring my little mirrorless gear, and we'll see if it can stand up to those temperatures. It'll, it'll do well. We'll get the portrait of you. Awesome. Cool. All right, man. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Frederick. Yep. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Panasonic Lumix cameras and the new Lumix G7 4K mirrorless interchangeable lens camera. This hybrid camera puts the power of 4K video and photography into the hands of all of us. Hybrid is when you mix stills and video, and now with the 4K photo features built into the Lumix G7, you can turn your 4K videos into high-resolution photos with just the touch of the screen. And because the camera can record 4K at up to 30 frames per second, you'll never miss a photo moment ever again. And with its groundbreaking depth from defocusing technology, you'll achieve super fast track focusing that rivals some of the best DSLRs in the world. And add to this that the camera is controllable from a smartphone app and you end up with a camera that's changing photography for all of us. Find out more about this new camera over at LumixLounge.com and follow at LumixUSA on Twitter for updates. All right, folks, I'm here with a photographer. His name is Stephen Brokaw. Steve Brokaw. Steve, um, yeah. His website is stephenbrokawphotography.com. And Stephen came to me by way of Valerie uh, Jardine. Stephen, how, how do you pronounce her name? I Jardine. See, Jardine. There you go. Uh, so Valerie connected us, and I'm glad she did because Stephen's an, ama an amazing photographer and does the kind yeah. of work that I like shooting <laughs> so <laughs> so i get the chance to pick pick his brain about model photography and that sort of thing but also um you have an awesome blog there and you and he did some 
did a write up on mirrorless versus, or right. actually, this sort of mirrorless versus full frame, and when you might want to use the two because right. you shoot both. So I thought mm -hmm. this would be a perfect time to have that kind of conversation. So welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. This is going to be great. Yeah, this is exciting. So let's start out. Let's start off with you. Just a little background on you. So you're in Indianapolis, Indiana. Right. And right. you, one of the one of the reasons for this interview is because you are one of the photographers, like many of our listeners, I'm sure, that straddle the line between mm -hmm. um, corporate regular job during the day, nine to five, right. and then at night you put on your cape and you're a superhero photographer, right? So, <laughs> so, so take me through that. How did that come about? Yeah, it's been something that I've been doing for quite a while. Um, I am a professional guy. I work in a finance department of a large international company that's actually headquartered in L.A. And, and um, so I've been a photographer, and it's gotten to the point now that I'm an empty nester. The photography has just really taken off and spend probably as much time now than I ever have in photography. So it's usually after normal office hours and on weekends. Yeah. And... Um, I've just been focusing almost exclusively on street photography, but primarily on model photography in the last, I'd say, the last three years. Yeah. Now, is is the goal for you to one day to just kill the corporate job completely and go full-time photography? Or is it just a nice, peaceful, yin-yang coexistence? You know, you get to do this on the, when you and have your creative release, and then right. you got the, the day job for stability and consistency and all that. Yeah, I can't stress enough how much better it is to have a day job um, when you're doing photography because it's not a cheap, uh, not a cheap endeavor. So, yeah. um, no, the plan is right now that you know I like to do the um, the day job because it pays the bills. Yeah. Um, I do photography because I enjoy it, uh, but ultimately, uh, as time goes, uh, the idea is to be you know to be better and better at photography, and hopefully one day that would be my primary. Uh, my primary role. Yeah. Do you do you keep the two separate? Do, do, in other words, do the the folks at work know that you're this you know high powered fashion photographer guy? <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, I have a pretty large staff, so they all know I do this. But you know, I completely keep it separate. Um, don't mix the two. Um, you know, I don't let people from work on my Facebook page. Most people read my blog, but that's uh, you know they. They kind of joke about around with it, but it's pretty much separate. Yeah, at least for now. At yeah. least for now. At least for now. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the uh, mirrorless versus full frame. And I'm one of the people that reads your blog, so I was reading right. it, and I know you have some opinions on when to use one or the other. And you shoot with a, I've got it down here, Fujifilm X20, and right. for the on the Micro Four Thirds or the mirrorless side, and then on the other side. You're a Nikon full frame shooter, so right. tell me what demystify what you're shooting on the Nikon side, and then take me through your your mindset as to why you'd want to use one or the other. Yeah, I've recently switched about a year ago to the Nikon D600, so I'm shooting full frame, mm -hmm. and that's almost exclusively in studio now. So I like it because it's it's fast, it focuses very quickly. I like the full frame nature of the studio work because I it allows me more flexibility in cropping. And just getting the tonal range a little bit better, and the, it's not really an ISO issue. Yep. But then I've purchased this X20 really about six months ago, and I've just fallen in love with it. Um, it's almost exclusive what I use now for street photography. Um, I carry it in my car whenever I go on a business trip. It's in my my briefcase, yeah. um, and it's been just an amazing, amazing camera. As a matter of fact, I went on a workshop with Valerie a few months ago. 
And uh, that's pretty much all I used. Um, the second and third day is the, and it, the quality is just amazing. So what I've found is that for, for studio work, until they come up with a really kind of a full frame um, Nikon, uh, that's a mirrorless camera. I'm going to stay with the DSLR. Mm-hmm. Um, and for just casual shooting, the um, the X20s work perfectly for me. And, uh, you know, that's the right size. It's not a pocket-type camera, yeah. but it is a camera that's good enough to, um, you know, keep in a bag. And it's it's a light-traveling camera, so I really love it. But I'm I do not, keep I'm not familiar with that camera. Is, it, is the X20, does that have interchangeable lenses, or is it a fixed lens? No, it's that's why I got it. It's got a it's got a zoom lens. Um, it's quite quite small, little oh, yeah, little guy. Okay, yeah. It's um it's like the little cousin of the X one hundred S. Okay. Um, lot smaller form factor. It's um it's got a fixed zoom lens, so you can't take it off, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's got all the functionality of the X one hundred S. So it's a nice little camera. It's very fast. I really enjoy it. How much How much was that thing? It was about uh, six hundred dollars. Okay. Um, six hundred ninety nine, I think it was. Yeah, so half um, half the X one hundred S. Yeah, and it was available too. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm still licking those wounds of not being able to get an X one hundred S. Yeah, well, you know, I checked. I did a lot of research. I looked at the Olympus, the OMDs. I looked at the Fujifilm cameras. I looked at the Pentaxes. I looked at them all. And what I really liked is the fact that it does have an optical viewfinder. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's uh, perfect for what I do because I like to put it up to my eye. I don't like holding the camera out like this to to compose. So it's worked out perfectly. So being being a studio shooter, like you are the you were the quintessential sort of studio shooter. You're shooting models right. in a studio environment, right. full frame Nikon camera, lights, camera, action, all that stuff. Right. Um, and you also have the, the the mirrorless on the Fuji side. Why you know in not from the standpoint of the 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 fixed zoom lens on the on the X20 that you have, but on the mirrorless side, say with the Micro Four Thirds, interchangeable lenses and being able to switch and and do that sort of thing. Why wouldn't you? What's the argument against moving to the smaller sensor size mirrorless? Or in other words, what's the argument for staying with a mirrored full frame? There's really no argument today. The cameras are getting so good. Um, all my lights can be triggered you know, using my, my electronic triggers. Um, so as long as you have a hot shoe, you're good to go. Yeah. And I know several people that use micro four-thirds and use the mirrorless cameras perfectly. And um, really, it's just the fact that I've got the D600. I've been a DSLR shooter forever. And it's really it would be a challenge if I ever upgraded um, and got rid of the DSLR the, and and looked at some something else. I would definitely look at a mirrorless camera, but right now it's what I have. Yeah, it's it's my workflow. I'm familiar with it. I know where all the buttons are. Yeah. it's like my right hand. So, and in the end, be, why? Like, why would you change if you're? Because I'm you're looking at your work. It's amazing work. Why would thanks. you? If you're already generating awesome work and you've got that muscle memory down and right. the workflow down and all that, change for change's sake doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Now, if your camera was broken. And right. you were like, okay, it's time to move to something else. I'm going to use this opportunity. Then you might consider it, right? Yeah, I might. But I've invested so much in the Nikon lenses. Oh, the lenses, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to switch. I mean, the, the quality of the 70 to 200 or just the 50 millimeter in studio is amazing. Yeah. So it would be tough to change. But yeah. I would definitely look at it, especially if Nikon came up with a mirrorless camera that was full frame. 
uh, I'd be looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Well, they might. You know, Sony Sony's cranking up the heat on that with their yeah, yeah. A7 and A7R full frame mirrorless. So they threw the gauntlet down. So we'll see what Nikon and Canon do. <laughs> yeah, I read those uh, cameras are awesome. So yeah, it's yeah. it's just a matter of time for Nikon to catch on. I think. Yeah, yeah. Which is unfortunate that they have to catch on. They should be leading. Not catching on. <laughs> you know, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> no, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, let's not go. Okay, so you mentioned you mentioned studio. So do you have your you have your own studio or right. so how do, how does all that work? Yeah, there's a um what I would call an industrial complex in Indianapolis, and they have part of it is a um is is an artist colony. And what they've done is they've rented out about a third of the building. It's huge, it's enormous for studio space. Mm-hmm. And um, a friend of mine were actually in a um, a gallery probably about two years ago, and we're just talking. So we'd love to have a studio space. And the guy who had the gallery said, "There's a build. There's a room that's basically open right next to him." And uh, so we leased it out and turned it into a studio, and got a couple of other guys to join us over the last year. And so there's four uh, photographers in this one. 1800 square foot studio and it's great because it's got a sitting area it's got a gallery it's got a kitchen it's got a storeroom and it's got a shooting area and um so it's we i probably use it two days a week um and then at least once on the weekend and it's close to the office so it's easy to stop over there and um we've got a google uh, calendar and we just sync up when we're going to be there and um we you know we have a lease on it and it's it's worked out amazing because it's so much cheaper than renting studio space. Yeah, so and you, um, so you guys take that that whatever the rent is for that space and divide it by four and everybody's yeah. happy. Yeah, everybody's happy. We have one guy who does the lease and the rest of us have a business agreement with. Mm-hmm. And what we do every month, we just pay them one quarter of the lease and we just use it as we do. And then there's a we have gallery openings and we have photographers that come in town and. Um, show their photography every every month at first Friday of the month, and it's it's really amazing. It's so much better than like shooting in your basement or your garage or having to rent a place. Right. Yeah. And just having, especially, I'm going to transition this into models in a second, mm-hmm. but but having models go to a physical sort of studio location. I'm sure is better than saying, hey, come to my house and I'm going to shoot you, you know, which, you know, a lot of people do. I've done that, but it's still a lot of people do it. But it's just a different sort of mindset of saying, hey, meet me at my studio at six o'clock, you know, rather than come to my house. It's nice. And it's getting a little bit of buzz in town because it's we've had it for about three years and uh, people kind of recognize the name now. And so you can say, hey, we shoot at this studio and they'll, you know, they kind of know where it's at. And it makes it so much easier. It's a place to store all of our equipment, uh, so I don't have to tote that with me. So it's been very, very good. It's probably the best move that I've made in the last two years from a photography standpoint. That's great. That's great, yeah. Yeah, there's something about the physical studio that just, you know, you're having all your stuff there, and you just go, and you shoot, and you got you dream up new shoots to do. And, yeah. And it's comfortable, especially the kitchen and the bathroom and all that stuff there for changing. It's just, right. you know, it, have a little wine on the counter. It's all good. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll go without the wine with these young models. Though. Yeah, that yeah, could probably, yeah. No. So let, yeah. let's talk about that. So with the models, um, what's so what's the business model and what's your ultimate goal out of this? Is it, are you building a business around mm-hmm. shooting models and they're coming to you, giving you money to shoot them? Or are you building your portfolio and you're saying, hey, model, come let me shoot you and I'll give you some prints or, or I'll pay you? What, what's your What's your ultimate goal? 
Yeah, it originally started off just um, shooting for themes. So I'd have a certain theme, a certain fashion look. Um, maybe I'd shoot a certain color. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would start doing it. It was all basically personal projects to start. But then I started to get, you know, my portfolio was developed. And so what started to happen probably about a year ago was where um, models would actually reach out to me. Um, and they say, hey, I like your style. I'd like to shoot with you. Um, I'd like to possibly... Um, you know, do a test shoot, um, a lot of TFP work, mm-hmm. um, where TFP, I wouldn't charge defi- define TFP, oh, uh, time for prints. So basically I'm not being charged for my services and the model's not being paid for her services either. So there's an agreement that I will shoot uh, a model for two hours and give her maybe 10 images for a portfolio. And in return, I get um, to shoot a model and put that quality work usually in my portfolio. Yeah. And who, um, who owns the rights to those images? You or the model? The photographer always does. Okay. Even if you uh, sign a model release, um, the only, I, I've never given up rights to the images. So I'll let them, I don't watermark any of my work. I'll let them basically use them for whatever. Mm-hmm. As long as they don't crop them, unless it's for a Facebook picture or they don't manipulate them they can basically do what they want with them as long as i you know as long as we have that agreement up front Mm -hmm. and um and so generally speaking what's happened now is that i get a lot of models that reach out to me um through facebook or email and say i'm going to be in town or local i'd like to shoot with you and so you know you usually look at what they've what they've done in the past if there's any you know any skill set and then based upon that, I'll schedule something and uh, we'll shoot. So, like, I've got a test shoot tomorrow. Um, and then usually do maybe three or four a month, um, just raw, fresh um, models that have just started out and do a test shoot for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, occasionally, uh, usually a couple times a month, uh, they'll reach out to me. And it's actually, you know, I'm saying, look, I'll you, you need to pay me for this. So I've got a pricing model and their portfolio. And what it, what is the pricing model? What what are you charging these folks? Um, what I do is I it's it's because I'm fairly new to it. It's fifty dollars um, for basically per hour for a sitting fee. Okay. So you come into the studio, it's fifty dollars an hour, which is generally the low end of the scale again because fairly new to it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, with that, you get a certain number of, of images. But if you want more, there's a cost per image. Okay. Um, most shoots usually run between two to three hours. So generally what you're looking at is, um, $50 an hour for three hours. Okay. And then the deliverable is a, is it a online gallery or are you giving them a disc or, or how do you do that? Yeah, I have an online gallery. Um, so basically it's a secure passworded protected gallery. Mm-hmm. They go in and select the ones they want. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'll put my watermark across the center of it. They select the ones they want. And then I will process those. And then as soon as they select them, they either take them from the gallery or I'll email them or Dropbox them to them. So it's usually an electronic delivery. Got it. And that's who's doing that? Smug Mugs, Infolio? Yeah, I use Smug Mug for the gallery. Okay. And then um, that seems to work out really, really well. Um, it's, it's quick. It's simple. Um, and then Dropbox, of course, is, is quite easy for delivery. Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I've seen a lot of photographers start using Dropbox because it's so easy. You just basically drag a bunch of images into a folder and it right. makes a gallery out of them and you share that right. link and it's done. Right? Yep. So, it's so no uploading yep. and this is just the problem with the Dropbox piece is you can't do the passwording. You can just, you know, it's it's 
uh, security through obscurity, yeah. so they have to know the link to get to it, but they can yeah. share it out and all that. But still, it's a path of least resistance, right? No, it works perfectly, actually. We've started to use that more and more. But right now, Smug Mug is the main way that we put the create the gallery. We put it up there. I usually leave them for about a month. Yeah. And then after they've um, selected their images, I take the gallery down. Yeah. So it works out really well. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Okay, then. So, so we've got the, the the professional side of things. So, when you're when you're finding models to shoot, just for like you want to build out and round out your portfolio, um, where are they coming from? Are they in the local area? Are you using Model Mayhem? How does that work? Yeah, I used Model Mayhem at start, um, but I really didn't get a really a lot of success with that. Simply because three years ago, you you really in this industry, you really need to have a reputation and you need some experience. So. I started off Model Mayhem, did very poorly with that. So it was basically through word of mouth, through makeup artists would recommend people, mm-hmm. um, friends of friends. And then once I got that established, then most of the local uh, talent we get through Facebook. Mm-hmm. So they'll reach out through me, either through my personal or my business Facebook page. And then recently in the last, I'd say the last year, I've actually started to, to work with agencies because then you're working with models that are actually skilled and they know how to pose. They have a certain look that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, and working with agencies is good, but it's tough. Um, tough in what way? Well, it's, if you're going to do a TFP shoot, there has to be some benefit for the agency. Um, rarely will they give the quality uh, talent if it's just, hey, you know, come on down to my studio and I want to shoot you for my, gal- for my portfolio. But if you're doing something uh, like I'm doing a, a shoot for a magazine Sunday, there was no problem at all getting, um, getting a, a model through an agency with that simply because you say it's going to be a published shot. Um, so if there's something in return, it's fairly easy. But most of the agencies, they want a fairly you know, for the good talent, you have to pay. I was going to ask that. So the the return could be, like you're saying, the magazine shoot. So it's exposure at that point. So the yep. model can say, hey, I pose in X magazine. Here's my tear sheet. Right. Um, um, if it's TFP, it's just an exchange back and forth. And I can see how an agency would say they put you at the bottom of the totem pole in yeah. terms of what you're going to get and if you're going to get somebody. But then the, the, the great equalizer is cash, right? So you just yeah. say, hey, I'm, Always. I need a blonde she's got to look like this and you know this body style and i'm willing to pay how much and so what what generally in your experience is that how much what are we what would you be paying for an experience model it's usually about 150 dollars an hour up um so 300 bucks for a two-hour shoot then yeah and usually there's minimums minimum two-hour minimum almost always uh generally speaking locally if if it's talent from here in town um, it's anywhere from fifty to seventy-five dollars an hour, so it, it is not a cheap um, endeavor. But I mean, that's why the day job is really nice to have. So, yeah. so you can fund it. It's your it's your your own personal Kickstarter campaign. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So what about so as you when you're coming up with the idea? So I was looking through your site and all the like it's beautiful fashion. The black and white stuff is stunning, by the way. Congratulations Thanks. on Thanks. that. So how do you come up with the ideas for these shoots? Are you are you just sort of sitting there and like watching TV and you're like, I want to do a shot like this and you know, and sketch it out and then build it and find the model, or is it more serendipitous? Yeah, there's absolutely no problem with that at all because I have probably when it comes to photography, I've got ADD. I mean, I've got a thousand ideas. Um, you know, I look at fashion magazines, um, I read books on photography, I 
look at different websites, I read blogs, and you get an idea. So what I'll generally do is I'll just um, either tear images out of a magazine or I'll copy some images from a website. I look at Pinterest. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk to other photographers. I follow certain photographers, and then I get an idea. And then generally what I'll do is that I'll decide which one I'm going to work on, and then I schedule. Generally at that time, I'll, I'll reach out to a makeup artist and find the makeup artist I want, and then we'll find uh, a model. And it's generally, you do it specifically on the look. So if you want somebody with long black hair and um, size two, Mm -hmm. then you're going to find somebody like that. And so you put out a casting call, either through uh, an agency or through um, Facebook. And before you know it, you'll get a few people. And uh, sometimes you'll get, you know, the redhead uh, five foot two gal, or you'll every once in a while get the perfect person. And then, um, not that we, there's any, anything wrong with redheaded five foot two gals, but if you're nah, looking for a six foot tall blonde person and the redhead right. five foot two shows up, you got a problem. <laughs> right, right, right. There's no, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a five foot two redheaded gal. Yes. No, the thing is, though, is that what I'll do is that then I'll come up with a concept and then I will actually share the concept with the model to make sure that she's aware of it. Um, then we'll exchange photographs electronically. Hey, this is the image we're trying to get. I'll usually create a, uh, um, a comp card or a, um, a book, um, and I'll send it to them. And then they'll look at it and say, hey, yeah, I'm interested in this. And then we'll agree to it. And we decide if there's going to be fashion brought in or if we're going to, if hey, bring these type of clothes. And then uh, we agree on a date uh, to the studio, and then we show up and we start going at it. And usually what I'll do is I'll go in the night before to make sure the studio is properly set up, get the lighting set up. Because yeah. the worst thing you can do is have somebody come in and you're spending, you know, a half hour getting your lighting set up or getting the backdrop set up. So I guy. generally yeah. come in prepared. Yeah. yeah. No. Well, when you're shooting, is it just you with a model or is it you, the model, hair and makeup or an assistant or what does the crew look like? Yeah. Today, it's almost always a, the model, uh, a makeup artist, a hairstylist. And about half of the shoots now uh, bring in fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, either it's uh, local fashion or we get it pulled from the different stores. Um, so I would say probably at minimum three people in a studio at any one time. Okay. Um, I'll get an assistant occasionally, but usually it's an assistant uh, when it's a big shoot and I need somebody to take notes or I'm shooting tethered. Yeah. But more than likely, I'm not using an assistant. So usually three to four people. So how how does that work money wise then? So doing the math, if you're if it's a two hour shoot, and say you're paying the model, uh, and it's not an mm-hmm. agency model, so which means, or mm-hmm. even if the model is paying you, it's a it's a two to three mm-hmm. hour shoot. So um, at fifty bucks an hour, and then you've got okay. a staff there. How are those folks working on on TFP as well? Because it seems like you you'd be in the negative at some point there, charging so not you know at fifty bucks an hour. Yeah, I would love to say that I'm making tons of money, but this is really a break-even proposition, right? <laughs> yeah, the makeup yeah. artist always gets paid. Um, only on like uh, shoots for submissions to magazines will they do that for TFP, but I I can't think of maybe one or two times that I've not paid the makeup artist. Yeah. Um, you always pay, pay the hairstylist. You always pay the fashion to come in, again, unless it's published um, work. Yeah. So almost always it's a break-even proposition. And where, um, where are you finding those folks, the makeup artist and the hair person? Uh, they're all local. Um, they're people that I, I have two makeup artists that I use almost all the time okay. <clears throat> because you know their style. They know my style. Um, it tends to be pretty similar um, all the time. Yeah. Uh, the hairstyle is pretty much the same way. I pretty much use just one person all the time. Yeah. 
And then we have about four or five people we use to bring in fashion. And most of the fashion, they pull it from the local department store so they have a cash themselves. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I've, I've heard the tip that um, go go to the mall and go to the Mac store in the mall and solicit the makeup artists in there. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, but then a lot of models don't like Mac, you know, so it's, yeah. it's interesting. So that's, that's really good advice. So speaking of advice. To, to round this out, what so other photographers that are that are earlier on the path than you mm-hmm. are that are like, you know what, I want to get into this. I want to I'd like to have I like to shoot models in my non corporate time and have a studio and mm-hmm. and be where Steven is. How what what advice would you give to them to sort of start moving in that direction? Yeah, Frederick, it's don't start with a studio. I mean, that's an expense immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're going to do this, then rent a studio space. Um you know, use your garage, use your basement, use a friend's studio, yeah. um, because that's an expense that you're going to have constantly. Yeah. Um, and until you get established, you're not going to make enough money to cover your cost of that. Um, so don't start with a studio. Secondly is just practice. Um, just practice, practice, practice. Develop your portfolio. Yeah. Don't just put anything up there. Just find the absolute best stuff that you do and put it out there. Um, make contacts, network heavily develop your um your name in the industry in the local market and then before you know it then you can start looking at a studio but what i've always learned and one of the things that i've found is the best for me is that by default i'm a business guy yeah so this is really a business first Mm -hmm. and i think that you need to always remember that you know it's an expensive business so watch your p's and q's watch your pennies uh don't go into debt. Um, yeah. Don't buy that latest camera if you don't need it. Yep. Um, it's easy to get out of hand, and it's easy to to uh, rationalize in your head that you need that latest camera. <laughs> yeah. There is absolutely nothing in this hobby or this business that is cheap. It is so expensive. Right, right, yeah, yeah. nothing. Yeah, I, I I was trying to think of something that's cheap. That Yeah, nothing. No, nothing no, is cheap. No. <laughs> That's great. So one last question for for you go here. Lighting wise, um, mm-hmm. in the studio, what are what are you using for lights? What's your what brand? Yeah, I'm exclusively an Ellen Chrome shooter. Okay. Um, so the I have the photographer RA. today that I've interviewed that's really? Ellen Chrome. Wow. Well, you know, I started off with that because I had Ellen Chrome triggers, and the um, a lot of the the studio strobes have the the triggers, the receivers inside of them. Yeah. Um, so I shoot Ellen Crom's, the RX and the BR um, s- series, and then I have all the um, Rotolux uh, modifiers. So basically, all the soft boxes, the beauty dishes you can imagine. And the fact that I'm shooting with uh, three other photographers, um, our studio is full of anything you'd ever want. I bet, I bet. So yeah, but I can imagine the uh, the shot planning session where you're like, okay, so I'm going to use this octobox and this yes. head and with this reflector here and this background and yeah the whole nine yards yeah it's it's uh that's probably the most challenging thing is really to determine what you want to do and how you're going to light it mm-hmm. um you know i've got my base set of lighting that i'm going to do every time and then i build from that yeah um but you got to get it right because if you're in studio uh you know you have one light the wrong place and all of a sudden, hey, where'd that shadow come from? Or you've uh, you've blown out a, a highlight. It just doesn't work. So you've really got to get it down. Are you are you doing multiple lights setups or, or just one? Yeah, I generally use two lights. Usually it's a beauty dish or a large 40, 43 or 60-inch uh, softbox. Mm-hmm. And then I usually have a hair light on top. Okay. Um, okay. So I've got this huge uh, Manfrotto Super Boom. 
and it um, you know has the the Ellen Crone light right on top, so it gives you a nice hair light. So it's usually two. Occasionally, you throw a light on the background if you want to blow it out for high key, but rarely more than two. How are, how are you triggering those through uh, wireless? Yeah, it's through an Ellen Crone, um, the Skyport triggers. Oh, okay, okay, got it. Yeah, very cool. See, sounds like yeah. you're firing on all cylinders. So you're... It's been it's been fun. It's been quite a trip. Yeah, I can tell how passionate you are about photography. And I haven't heard much about the corporate job. I'm just saying, I haven't heard much excitement there. <laughs> well, I'm hoping none of my uh, work colleagues hear this then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, I see what's coming. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Well, congratulations on all your success. Thanks. thanks and thanks for taking the time to uh, to chat with me. This has been very educational and, and a little depressing. Because when I, when I talk to folks like you that are doing it, you know, I'm like, yeah. oh, man, I want a studio. I want <laughs> I want to be Steven. Yeah. So it's, it's really been cool. great. It's been great. It's been perfect for what I'm doing and uh, I would recommend it to anyone. Very cool. All right. Yeah. And where, so I mentioned at the top, you're at Steven Brokaw photography.com. You want to spell that out for us? Right. It's uh, S T E V E N B R O K A W photography.com. It's a Squarespace site. And then you can always find me on Facebook. I'm really active on Facebook. Um, both on Stephen Brokaw Photography for my business side and just Steve Brokaw on the other side. And uh, if you want to know about me, that's where I'm at. Awesome. Stephen, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, thanks a lot. And I love TWIP. It's great. Well, thank you. Thank you. All All right. right. You take care. See ya. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. You can try FreshBooks for free. Just head over to freshbooks.com twip and enter twip in the how did you hear about us section when you sign up. And as I've said on This Week in Photo before, We use FreshBooks as the back end to basically run most of the stuff behind the scenes on this business to keep the lights on and to keep everybody happy. Because as we all know, as creative professionals, we're not necessarily focused on capturing our income, expenses, and tracking billable time and all that. And I think the reason that we don't capture all of those things is simple. It's boring. We're creatives. We like fun stuff. We like Photoshop and Lightroom and you know, all these other cool things that let us express that side of our brain. And thankfully, FreshBook offers us as small business owners a way to quickly and easily keep track of our time and money without disrupting our workflow or, you know, sort of messing with our creative juices. With FreshBooks, you can invoice clients. It's easy. You can do it in seconds and expenses can be automatically imported so that you don't have to lift a finger. You're just doing the stuff on the back end while you do other cool stuff. You can even track billable time as easy as starting a timer on your on your mobile phone. You can whip up business reports. You can stay on top of your income, expenses, and tax time is coming up. So with a couple of clicks, you can generate reports for your CPA or your accountant so so that you're staying out of trouble. So grab some popcorn, learn how to fresh books by watching some of their free getting started webinars. I'm a big fan of webinars and they've got some excellent ones online for you to check out. Once again, if you want to check FreshBooks out, you can just head over to freshbooks.com slash twip, enter the code this week in photo or twip in the how did you hear about us section to start your free 30-day trial. All you need is an email address to uh, to try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Just go over to freshbooks.com slash twip and enter twip in the how did you hear about us section. 
And we want to thank FreshBooks for their support of This Week in Photo. And that brings us to the end of another episode of TWIP. A huge thanks to our sponsors, Panasonic Lumix Cameras and FreshBooks for their support of This Week in Photo. And if you'd like to get in touch with Ron Murray, you can find him on his website over at ronmurrayphoto.com. That's R-O-N-N. M-U-R-R-A-Y photo.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with Steve Brokaw, you can find him at his website, and that's stevenbrokawphotography.com. And that's spelled S-T-E-V-E-N-B-R-O-K-A-W photography.com. And also be sure to visit our website over at thisweekinphoto.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. <laughs>